In the name of Jesus, amen. As Epiphany comes to a close today, with this being the last Sunday in the season of Epiphany, we consider the historical account of the transfiguration of our Lord. And uh, for years, I've preached on the event itself. I've always preached on the gospel lesson and all of the details there and how important they are. Uh, But today, I'm going to preach not on the event, but on the significance of the event, uh, the meaning and the usefulness and what it means for us today. Uh, One of the guys who was there tells us what the chief takeaway was from the whole experience. Around 35 years after it took place, uh, Peter recounts and then tells us what happened. And in 2 Peter chapter 1, which was the epistle lesson, we hear these words. He says, We did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when Jesus received honor and glory from God the Father and voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven because we were with him on the holy mountain. Uh, The we that he's talking about and referring to here is Peter, James, and John. They saw all of this with their own eyes and they heard it all with their own ears. They were eyewitnesses of the entire event. They saw the actual majesty and glory of God shine before them. It's a remarkable thing. Jesus was fully God, fully man, and yet appeared as a man completely uh, like no other, uh, just like every other man. And yet in that moment, there was true light shining out, bursting forth from the physical body of Jesus. It's a remarkable thing. And then Peter tells us what the point of the transfiguration was. And then he says, we have the prophetic word confirmed. Or another way to put it, we have as very certain, proven to us, the prophetic word. They have the word of God confirmed to them, proven to them by witnessing the transfiguration. That the, the, the benefit of the transfiguration was that any doubts that they had melted away, they evaporated. The word of God was fully confirmed to them. Uh, the apostles were certain and sure of the veracity and the reliability of the word of God. And the written word of God is confirmed there with an eyewitness testimony. And Peter says that is what the transfiguration accomplished. Now the question is, how does that accomplish that? Um, How does it confirm the word of God? How how is it that the transfiguration does that? Uh, I would suggest to you, it's because Moses and Elijah were there as well. Moses wrote the Pentateuch, that is the first five books of, uh, the, uh, of the Old Testament, of the Bible. Elijah was the prophet of prophets. He was the main prophet. Uh, the greatest signs and wonders were done through the prophet Elijah. He represents the entire uh, college of prophets. And in that moment, in that very instant, the entire Bible is fully confirmed to Peter. Why? Because Moses and Elijah 
had died hundreds and thousands of years before. Peter had only read and heard about them, but he had never seen or met them. And yet, Peter sees that Moses is a real person, and Elijah is a real person. And even though they died hundreds of years before, thousands of years before, even though they had died for so long before, they were alive and well. And they were with Jesus, and they were in communion with Jesus. They were talking to Jesus and to one another. And then Peter saw Jesus in his uh, lowly flesh, uh, in, his, in his lowly uh, um, appearance there. And in that moment, he lifts the veil, uh, and, and his glory shines forth. He reveals his majesty. There are radiant beams shooting out of his face. And Peter heard the Father from heaven tear open the skies speak to him, confirm everything that Jesus said. And Peter saw all of this in a moment, and whatever questions he might have had about the Bible now are gone. Whether Moses was real, whether he actually did write the the Torah, whether Elijah was a real person, all of that is completely confirmed to him. Every word, he sees it in front of him. It's like uh, as if Peter were saying something like, look, if you were questioning the helpfulness and the necessity of the Bible, just consider the fact that I was on the mountain and saw all of this happen before my very eyes, and I am completely and utterly convinced of what I've seen. Now, why why would Peter need to tell people that the Bible is trustworthy? Uh, apparently, people were saying it was untrustworthy, if you could imagine that. Uh, people were saying the Bible is just sophisticated mythology. Uh, the Bible is like Aesop's fables and stories and philosophy, just some ideas to help you get through a, a few things here and there. People w- were saying those things, and that's why he says, and he starts this off by saying, we did not follow cleverly devised fables, myths there in the Greek, when we made these things known to you. This isn't anything like uh, Zeus or Hermes or any of these people. This is historical. These things happened in real time. And so Peter is addressing this with the congregation. He knows that the congregation is uh, um, frustrated and flustered and even falling into this very false doctrine. Um, So he addresses it with them. But by the way, just a an aside here, what would Peter gain for making all of this up? What what would he get for lying about this? In fact, what we see is that Peter lived a life of poverty. Silver and gold, he said he doesn't have, but what he has is the word of God. He lived a life of shame. He was rejected, beaten, and flogged, kicked out of synagogues. He, He lived a life of sorrow because of the things he was saying. He died a martyr, and according to tradition, his life was stripped from him. He was crucified upside down. He gained nothing for any of this, for preaching this. Why in the world? Why in the world? What is the motive to lie about such a thing when he gains nothing for it? No popularity, no income, nothing for this. Okay, well, there are, and sorry, there were a few people in the time. Um, spreading the false teaching that the apostles made up everything. The whole thing was a myth. It was all legend. So they rejected the Bible, and Peter points out that the ones rejecting the Bible 
in fact, had a motive. The ones preaching it didn't have a motive, but the ones rejecting it had a motive. And he says, well, there is a motive that they're, they're, they're uh, behind this. There's a reason they're saying these things. And he, this is what he says. These false prophets, they rejected the Bible to excuse themselves from a life of Christian obedience. That's why they got rid of it. They said, look, all that stuff in the Bible with all its rules and laws is just a bunch of mythology and fables. And look, we don't have to take those words seriously. They don't really mean anything. And Peter says, there's a reason they're saying that. It's so that they can indulge in the desires of their flesh. That's Peter's point. Peter calls them false prophets, and and, and, uh, false prophets can teach any number of false things wrong. Uh, But these particular false prophets were preaching something that today we call antinomianism. Uh, Literally means against the law or lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. So what the antinomians would do, what these false prophets did, is they would spin up all sorts of complicated explanations and arguments to dismiss what the Bible clearly says and plainly says so that, so that they could indulge in their sins. That was the, that was the purpose of it. <clears throat> in fact, you don't have to take my word for it. You sit down and read Second Peter. I think it's, it's three chapters. It takes about, honestly, seven minutes or something like that. And then you'll see what I'm saying. Peter hammers away at this false teaching the entire letter. He's going after it. And he writes these words. He says, They indulge in the lust of defiling passions and despise authority. And bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Uh, In other words, what he's showing is that the blasphemy and the indulging in sin go hand in hand. They're connected. They're two sides of the same coin. But he gives us even more insight in chapter 3. And this is what he says. He's saying that unbelief and immorality not only go hand in hand, but one causes the other. And so this is what he writes in chapter 3. He says, scoffers, scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. Do you see that? He says, there's going to be people who come and reject and challenge the Bible. And in fact, they're going to scoff and mock the word of God. And we will ask, why are they doing that? Why why would they do that? And he says, because they are following their own sinful desires, their own sinful passions. That's what's behind it. The reason they scoff at the word is because they are so deeply devoted to their sin. They love sin, and they scoff and deride anything that speaks against it. Peter wrote that 2,000 years ago, and it still is true today. It still speaks to us today. That particular false teaching has not gone anywhere. In fact, it has probably increased. It is much more widespread than anything before. To the most extreme degree... <clears throat> There are atheists and agnostics and worldly people and all these sorts of things who claim not to believe in God because of some specific 
uh, grammatical or historical arguments, some philosophical or rational arguments, something like this. <clears throat> and to be honest, I don't believe it at all. I don't buy it. I, I don't think that is genuine. In fact, I am persuaded that those who don't believe in God do so not because they've been convinced by some rational argument, but because there's a particular sin that they indulge in and they don't want to give up. That is the point. That there is some lust or some desire or some behavior or some lifestyle that they identify with so deeply. So they come up with all sorts of reasons, so, sorts of intelligent sounding reasons, sometimes even academic and even persuading sounding reasons to get themselves to that point as a way to get their conscience, their guilt off, their conscience off the hook to get their guilt and cover it up somehow and deal with it. People will say something like, well, look, he's, he wrote a book on this. He has a degree uh, from this university. He's smart, he's reasonable, he's rational, he's academic, he is persuasive, he's articulate, he's got it all figured out. And then Peter would say, that guy, he only wants to sin. That's, that's what's going on there. This, this, that is a guy who loves sin and he has gone through all of these years of work and labor and study just to justify himself and find a way to cope with his guilt. Some people even say <clears throat> that evolution caused immorality in our society so that uh, once we started teaching evolution in the schools, then it was over and we've uh, shot ourselves in the foot here. While it certainly didn't help, I think it's backwards. According to Peter, evolution, the teaching of evolution, didn't lead to immorality. Immorality led to the teaching of evolution. Evolution is a complicated way to say that you're just animals, that you came from nothing, your life means nothing, it's going nowhere, nothing means anything, and so do what you want. Do, do whatever you want. It doesn't matter. It, what if, so what if an animal does it? Well, then you do it too. There is no morality, there's nothing, there's no objective truth or standards or any, any of this. The truth is that... Uh, <laughs> That evolution is not a good or even convincing theory for the existence of the world at all. It's not. It is extremely popular. I know that. But that's only because the alternative is a world with God. An omnipotent, an omniscient, omnipresent God and people don't like that. And so if they had to choose between a world with God and a world without him then they would choose a world without him if that means they get to keep all of their sins and do whatever they want. Again, I'm not saying anything that you shouldn't already know, that, that you haven't already read in the Bible. Romans chapter 1, verse 18 says it so plainly. By their unrighteousness, they suppress the truth. On account of what are they suppressing the truth? Their unrighteousness. The reason so many reject God is not because they're convinced he doesn't exist, but because they're afraid of what it will mean if he does. Now, 
it's not just a problem in the world or in the schools or something like this. This is a problem even found in the churches. There are what we call liberal churches all around. Uh, Entire groups of people who call themselves Christians who have taken the liberty, the freedom to cut out and reject and dismiss certain parts of the Bible. They have Bibles in these churches. They use the Bibles in these churches. They even read the Bibles in these churches. But they come up with all sorts of uh, fantastic, uh, fanciful, ridiculous reasons to reject what the Bible is clearly saying. Uh, I've always found it interesting that liberal churches go to such great lengths to explain away nearly every, nearly every verse that talks about sin. But I've never seen them use the same arguments to explain away the verses that talk about love and grace and God's forgiveness and his mercy and eternal salvation and forgiving one another and peace and joy and all those things. I, I've never seen them apply the same logic to those words. But it's very obvious they're they're going after a certain word of the Lord. Those they keep, the other ones this is about sin and lawlessness and, oh, and disobedience, that they explain away. There are plenty of mainline liberal denominations who do this. Um, <clears throat> just to list a few, this is an exhaustive, exhaustive list, but the UCC, the United Church of Christ, uh, the Presbyterian Church USA, PCUSA, the UMC, the United Methodist Church, uh, there are some Episcopal and Anglican churches and so on uh, that teach these things, that do these very things that Peter is condemning. Uh, One of them, one of these churches, hits very close to home, which you know, and that is the ELCA, the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America. Uh, For the record, we are not in any way in fellowship with them. We do not commune with them. They do not commune with us. We do not share pulpits or resources or anything. There are, they have massive errors. They deceive many because they call themselves Lutheran. They use the same word, the same name that we have, but they mean something entirely different by it. <clears throat> And, and, and this is why so many are deceived. I am not talking about individual members or congregations here. I am talking about the synod as a whole, what they officially preach, teach, and confess in their doctrine as a church body. The ELCA has rejected so much of the Bible. For instance, they have things, they have explained the way the clear verses of Scripture and have introduced things like women lectors in the services reading the Word of God publicly in the church, communion assistants, uh, women communion assistants, distributing the Lord's Supper as well, women elders, even things like women pastors. Uh, They have also turned a blind eye to sins like cohabitation, as living together without marriage, and uh, things like no-fault divorce. Uh, They have married homosexuals, ordained them as pastors in their churches, ordained transgender pastors and bishops. In their synod convention in 2019, about five years ago, they voted to say 
The majority of the synod said this, of those representing it. Uh, they voted to say that Jesus is not the only way to the Father. He is not the only way to heaven. That there are other paths and other religions are equally valid and can get you there. The ELCA even approves and supports of the wicked atrocity of abortion. And through their institutions, they have even given mothers money to pay for abortions. That is, uh, to murder and dismember their own baby in the womb. And they, and they do it all in the name of the Holy Gospel. In the name of Jesus is what they do it in. And they're not the only ones. <clears throat> Today we're observing uh, what we call the Sanctity of Life uh, Sanctity of Life Sunday. After the service, I'm going to address these things, the wicked act of abortion. And it would be great if you all could be there. Um, it needs to be condemned for what it is. It is vile. It is hellish. It is wrong. And yet the only, the only reason we even need a Sunday like this, the only reason I need to say any of this stuff from the pulpit is because there are Christians and entire church bodies who do these things. And deceive many. They deceive Christians into thinking this is the will of God. Romans 1 says, though they know God's righteousness, God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. They not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. When you read 2 Peter and the rest of the Bible, you're going to see what Peter is saying today. And he's saying this, that if you're called by the gospel, if you believe in Jesus Christ for your salvation, if you have the forgiveness of sins in Christ, you've been given new life and faith in him, then you cannot say no to the law. True faith doesn't say no to God's word. True faith clings to every single word, even the difficult words, even the words that require you to deny yourself and the things you love. If there's, a, in other words, if there's a theology that you're hearing or that you're believing somewhere or believing in your heart that makes it easier for you to sin, that approves of your sin, or even makes you and leads you to be proud of your sin, you can be sure that you're listening to false doctrine, listening to the devil himself. Peter tells us uh, the situation that we're in. He says, we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. In other words, Jesus is the morning star, the light of the world, and yet we are currently living in a certain darkness here in this world. And it's not just the darkness of the world, it is the darkness of your own heart. It is dark, it is murky. Your, your heart is darkened by sin. And if this is the case, then we can conclude very clearly that our hearts are not the thing that's going to help light the way in this life. Your heart is not going to tell you where to go and what to do in life or how best to live your life. Your heart will not help you avoid the dangers of this life because your heart is the danger in this life. That's what he's saying. Your heart is the darkness. And just about the worst advice you can give your child uh, is just to follow your heart. Do whatever your heart desires. Jesus himself speaks of the same heart, and he says, out of the heart come evil thoughts and murder and adultery and sexual immorality and theft and false witness and slander and so on and so forth. 
And I'm not just talking about people out there. This is a warning to Christians too. The heart is deceitful above all things. It is constantly contradicting the word. In fact, so much so that if I preach to you the law, then your heart is going to say, great, now I have to work for my salvation. And then if I preach to you the gospel, then your heart is going to say, well, great, I don't have to do anything now. I can do whatever I want. And your heart is constantly fighting against the word of God, contradicting it over and over. And so this is why I have to preach every Sunday. This is why you have to hear the word at least once a week every Sunday. Because your heart is constantly going too far in one direction or the other. And so what do we do? How do we get out of this? And Peter says, pay attention to the prophetic word. Stop listening to your heart. In fact, try to turn it off, silence it, and just listen to the word of God and let the word of God speak, and that's it. And let the word of God have the last word. Listen to the word of God alone because it is the only bright light in this life. It shows us things that are as they really are, and it shows us ourselves. And this word, this Bible, is a light unto our path. This is a lamp for us. We don't need some of it. We don't need parts of it. We need all of it. We need the law and the gospel. We need the threats and the promises. And we don't pit God's word against itself. We don't take some of God's word and reject others. We take every word of God that comes from his dear mouth. And this is because the reason we're doing this is not just because we're Uh, academics and we we just want to have a certain philosophical view of the scriptures. The reason we are doing this is because the Lord has told us to and because the same Bible that shows you your sin is the same Bible that shows you your Savior. The same word which condemns you is the same word which justifies you and saves you. The same word of God that rebukes your sin is the same God who took your sin upon himself and bore it and laid his life down for you. The same Bible that points out all of your sins is the same one that points to the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world and shows you his grace and his mercy and his love and his forgiveness and his death and his resurrection for you. The word points out your sin not to condemn you, but to save you. That the very purpose of rebuking your sins is to draw you closer to Christ. And so, in true faith and true thanksgiving and true joy, we love the God who first loved us. We love his word because it is life and light. And when we hear all that Jesus did, all he endured, how glorious he was and yet how meek and lowly he was for us, how he bled for us, how he suffered for us, how he died for us, then when we hear this, we gladly, joyfully repent of our sin. And we gladly leave it behind us. And we gladly cling only to Jesus. And we turn away from our sins, which have given us no lasting joy or pleasure whatsoever. But rather, we cling to the word of God, which gives us a joy undying, an eternal joy. So turn away from all of your lust and anger and your disappointment and your doubt and your unbelief. Come into the light of God's holy word and adorn yourself with gladness. And take care that you're not carried away with the error of lawless people 
and you lose your own footing. But grow in grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him alone be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. The peace of God which surpasses all understanding, guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.